good ministry and song. Please open to the eighth chapter of Romans again. I want us to read for the sake of the context, beginning with verse 9 through verse 13. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, and that really means because of this, Brothers, that means all who know the Lord. We have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. Um, but if the Spirit... you by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. He was seated in my study one day, having made an appointment to come and see me. He was obviously disturbed, ill at ease, nervous, carrying a very heavy burden. After we'd had prayer together, we began to talk, but it became quickly obvious to me that he was talking about everything except the purpose for which he had come, leading me to know that the subject was so painful, so disturbing, so devastating, that he just couldn't verbalize it. Having seen such situations before, I became very bold to use direct counseling and I asked him, are you struggling with some sin that seems to be ruling and controlling and destroying you? It was just like you had lanced a, a boil of poison as he began to pour out his deep hurt, his humiliation, his defeat involved in his story. A very committed Christian, he had struggled with this particular sin for a long time until it had just driven him to distraction. And every time he fell into it, he had more self-condemnation and more turmoil until he said to me that day, Pastor, you're my last hope. If you can't help me, 
I think I will lose my mind or I'll kill myself. And he was very serious. This incident happened over 14 years ago now. And the last I met this man, he was happily married, had a lovely family, was very much involved in serving the Lord and walking in victory. Because he had shared his besetting sin and his failure with his pastor. But I think I would have to admit that for every Christian who somehow finds the courage and the strength to open his heart and spill out his failure and his besetting sin like that to seek help, there are probably ten who never do. And they go through life struggling, sometimes in great defeat, sometimes in terrible guilt, struggling to find answers, but never quite finding them. We are very careful to hide our sins and to wear a mask. I love the new book that Charles Swindoll has written that's become a bestseller, Dropping Your Guard. It's a tremendous book. And he unmasks us in that book in a very skillful way and shows us how that we go around with these phony masks, never quite sharing with anyone how deeply we're really hurting. There is victory over besetting sins if we will appropriate what's there. The Christian community is not in agreement as to how you overcome sin, how you walk in sanctification and separation unto God, but at least there is agreement that there is victory. How in the world can I be holy? I borrowed that title today from a good friend, Erwin Lutzer, who wrote a book a few years ago with that title. And for some time it was a bestseller because even though people are very careful not to let anyone know what they're really struggling with, they want answers. And they'll pick up a book like that and read it because they're searching. It's very normal that every Christian, every truly born-again Christian, is concerned about sins in his life. Because you're ruled by the spirit of life that has come to you through redemption and salvation. And that new man wants to be in control And so we would be very abnormal indeed and probably not even a Christian if we are not concerned about how to overcome those besetting sins in our lives. Where do we find victory? I mentioned that 
Christendom is not in agreement as to how you overcome it. There's one segment sometimes called the holiness view, which teaches that by a second work of grace of the Holy Spirit, that just like the Holy Spirit brought you to salvation through a second experience or a second work of grace, and some groups call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that once you enter into this, that all of a sudden your struggle with sin greatly diminishes, or as some teach it, you can actually come, they say, to sinless perfection. I'm not going to take time to discuss that view with you extensively, except to say that I do not believe it can be supported by life as we see it lived in Christian people, nor can it be supported from the word of God, even though some of you here may have been taught such teaching in church relationships in the past. There's another view that's abroad, which is sometimes referred to as the Keswick teaching. Or let Jesus Christ live in you teaching. That what you need to do to live a holy, godly life is to just give up on yourself and invite the Holy Spirit or the Lord Jesus Christ to live his life in you and then it'll just kind of happen as you continue to live that way and you'll find yourself walking above sin. Even though I have more sympathy with that view than the first one I mentioned, I do not believe that it can be supported either from life or from the word of God in the fullness of what some teach on that particular subject. There's a third view. And I think this is probably the most common view. And it's almost a passive view of recognizing that I'm sinful and I live in a sinful world and, and uh, why fuss about it anyway? And they just kind of dismiss their sins and their failures with indifference. And their attitude is, I'm human anyway and I can confess my sins, and uh, that's all there is to it. And they go merrily on their way, living carnal, defeated, powerless, impotent lives, defeated by sin. Well, I'm happy to tell you that the Word of God teaches that there is a way to be holy in this world in which we live. Our scripture text we read from Ephesians this morning, spoke about it, and our brief text we're looking at today, verses 12 and 13, speak to it eloquently, and I want us to take time to look at it and ask ourselves, how in the world can I be a holy, godly, ever-increasing in my spiritual victory over sin kind of Christian? Let's look at it. First of all, you must realize your debt. Realize your debt. Let me read verse 12 again. Therefore, because of 
what he's just said. Brothers, believers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. We have an obligation. And the first consideration is that it's a negative obligation. What does he mean by obligation or debt? It means somebody, something owns you. That has put you in debt. You have an obligation for which someday you will answer to God. At the judgment seat of Christ. And I like the way he approaches it. He approaches it first of all negatively. And he makes it very clear to us. We are, we are no longer in debt to the sinful nature. And it's a legal matter. That's what he's been telling us. Oh, dear friends, we need to understand this doctrinally and legally. That that old sin nature that you still have as a Christian doesn't own you anymore. It has no right to rule over you unless you let it rule. If you're a child of God, you're not in debt to it anymore. Before you become a Christian, you are in debt all the way. You are in debt to its rule to the point that you're going to do what that old sin nature wants you to do. It's going to control you. It's going to own you. And it's going to exact its final penalty, which is death. Separation from God for all eternity. But if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, you're not in debt anymore. You do not have to be ruled by your old sin nature. You are without excuse before God if you're a Christian to say that you have to sin and you have to be controlled by these things because you're too impotent. You're not in debt to your old sin nature. And you have to realize that. And I must realize it. In order to step into the role of victory and power over our sin nature. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Back in the Civil War days, there was a real problem when the war was over and the slaves were free. To enter into their freedom, they still felt that they were owned emotionally, many of them. They had deep ties to their slave owner. They didn't know how to function in freedom. And it took a long time. And some of them, at least in that initial generation, never really realized how to walk in their freedom. They weren't in debt anymore. Their slave owner didn't own them. And that's what Paul is trying to bring home to you and me who are so used to be controlled by our fallen nature before we become Christians, that it's kind of the normal thing after you become a Christian 
And temptation comes to just fall into the same old pattern and do the same old wicked things you did before you were saved. And when you live in a body like we live in, it's very normal to uh, face the temptations that lead us into that kind of attitude. But Paul says we're not owned by our sin nature. Now, he says we are obligated. We are in debt. Now, what does he mean? What's the positive application of that then? If I'm not in debt to my sin nature, what am I in debt to? Well, the key to that is the word therefore, which is pointing back to what he's just said. What are you in debt to? You're in debt to divine grace. You're in debt to the Holy Spirit of God who has brought spiritual life into you. You're in debt to the whole plan of redemption and all that Jesus Christ has done to set you free from the rule of sin. And the thing that we will answer for on the judgment seat of Christ is what we did with our obligation, what we did with our debt as believers. Did we use what God had given to purchase our freedom? Maybe I can illustrate it a little more where we live than slavery by most of us have had experience of car payments or house payments. And uh, usually the bank gives you a set of, of um, kind of monthly payment uh, slips and every month you sit down and you write out your check and you keep waiting and waiting and waiting for that last one. And you wait a long time. They're getting longer payment periods all the time for a new car, as many of you know. But can you imagine how ridiculous it would be if after you pay that last payment and you send it in to the bank, if next month you sat down and you wrote out your check again and sent it into the bank and month after month after month you just kept making the payment that's already been paid and you didn't own up to the fact that that you didn't have that obligation anymore you had a different kind of obligation just to understand you don't owe that anymore that's really what Paul is saying You have an obligation to appropriate divine grace. That's the first step to being holy in a sinful world. We are debtors to the Holy Spirit. The second thing we must realize if we're to overcome sin is sin's deadliness. Look at verse 13, the first part. For if you live According to the sinful nature, you will die. That's a rather startling statement. And it's a little difficult to understand. And there have been different stabs at interpreting what it says. The people who believe that you can be saved and lost again say there it is. 
There's proof that if you live as a Christian, you fall back into your old sinful pattern of living, you will die. You'll lose your salvation. Well, as you know, I take very strong exception to that. I believe the whole passage is teaching just the opposite. And you'll hear me thunder that theme from this pulpit while I work my way through the rest of Romans 8 time and again. That once you become God's very own and you're born from above, that you have moved beyond condemnation. That's really what the chapter's about. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's not what it means, even though some interpret it that way. There are others who say that this is a reference to what will happen to a Christian who just abandons himself to his sinful nature and begins to live sinfully again, that the Lord is going to chasten him even to the point of taking his life. Now, I believe the Lord does that sometimes. I believe the word of God teaches that in passages like 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul said of the Corinthians, some are sickly among you and some have died, some are asleep, simply because they were living such sinful lives and dishonoring the Lord's table. And uh, 1 John 5 speaks about a sin unto death. And uh, there are other passages like Acts 5 where Ananias and Sapphira sinned and God struck them dead for the wickedness of their sin of lying to the Holy Spirit as a permanent example to you and me. And God does deal with people that way, but I don't believe that's what's being said here. What is he saying there? I believe he's just restating what he said many times already. What is true of the person who is ruled by his sinful nature? Just as he says it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. He is making a very positive statement about what happens to a person who is under the control of his old sin nature so that it rules him and owns him. He's on his way to death. Separation from God. Forever and ever without hope and without God. Unless he receives Christ as his Savior. He's just stating it again. Very conclusively. Uh, What is the condition? And why is he doing it? He's doing it to tell you and me how deadly sin is. I was telling the folk in the early service, even though I hadn't really planned to say it as a part of the sermon, I really believe it's true that the greatest problem in the body of Christ today is a weak view of sin. We're not afraid of it. We flirt with it. We do not admit to ourselves how deadly it is. And if there's one thing that's holding back Almighty God from using the church to make a difference in the world 
that we live in today with a mighty movement of his power and his grace. It's the view that we have of sin. And we flirt with it and we toy with it. And we do it. Oh, I can confess it. And that's all we seem to feel that's necessary. Sin is never to be treated lightly. Its very nature is deadly, deadly, deadly. And nobody's going to get very far overcoming sin until he recognizes sin for what it is. I said to somebody just not too long ago who had flirted around with sin until it was destroying his family. Have you ever put down a list of what sin is costing you in black and white? Written it down point by point. And I named off five or six things that it was costing him. Costing him his own sense of peace. Costing him the trust and devotion of his wife. Costing him his work in Christian ministry. Costing him the favor and blessing of God upon him. Costing him his livelihood. And on and on goes the list. But we'll never really overcome sin in our lives as Christians until we admit its deadliness and we want to be free. The third step is to realize your responsibility. Look at verse 13. The last part. But if by the Spirit You put to death the misdeeds of the body. You will live. How can a Christian live a victorious, sanctified, spiritual life that honors God and um, enables him to have a growing experience of victory over besetting sins that have tried to rule him and control him? That's what our text speaks about. Our responsibility. And the first word that's so important to recognize is the word body. Body. We have been learning about where sin makes its appeal to the Christian. The spirit has been liberated and set free in righteousness And true holiness by the entrance of the Holy Spirit into your spirit. But the body is called the body of sin. Do you remember that? Look with me again at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Isn't that a statement? Your body still remains dead because of sin. Death has its hold on your body. How does sin get at you? Through your body appetites. Now God in his 
original plan did not plan that your ears would want to listen to sinful things and your eyes would want to look on sinful things and your mouth would want to speak sinful things and your appetite would want to become gluttonous. It wasn't God's plan that your hands would want to do unkind and cruel things and your feet would want to take you where no Christian had ought to go. But the fall brought exactly that condition to you. It's because of the hold that sin in its death grip on your body still has that even after you know the Lord, you want to listen to the lyrics of that pop music today, rock music, that are full of sin and wickedness. That your eyes want to look on Playboy or some other pornographic material. That your lips still want to speak those nasty words. Those immoral words that we're warned about in Ephesians and the Bible reading this morning. Sin still has a hold on your body. So that you can become gluttonous. And all the other appetites that the body has that still under the depravity and the rule of sin and the death of sin. And it's important to know that. Recognize that your body remains the channel of sin's appeal. How long will I have a sin problem as a Christian? As long as you live in your body. You're never going to become utterly sanctified and holy in all of your ways. And you'll be amazed. I don't care how you grow as a Christian. You'll be amazed until your dying day at how wicked temptation can come because you're still living in a body that's dead because of sin. But you have a responsibility to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now, how do you do that? That's really the key. It's important that you realize the deadliness of sin as we've looked at it. And you realize your obligation and your debt. But the key is by the Holy Spirit putting to death the deeds, the misdeeds of the body. How in the world can I be holy? There it is. Now, how do I do that? I'm constantly amazed in personal counseling, though I have said it from this pulpit at least since I've been here, I'm sure 50 times, the steps to doing exactly what Paul says here. They're in this text, and we wanted to take time to search them out, but I've shared them with you before from other texts, and I'm going to share them with you again. And I hope if you don't do anything else, you'll write them down, you'll memorize them, and you'll put them into practice. I know they work, first of all, and most important, because they're biblical. They're what the Word of God teaches. How do you put to death by the Holy Spirit the misdeeds of the body? And second, I know they're true by experience. And I, just like you, I wrestle 
And I face the misdeeds of my body. And I know I shall until I die. And I've never found a way to victory other than God's way. The word's way. What are the steps? First of all, it's by honesty. By honesty. That's really the heart of this whole text. He's wanting us to be honest. And to admit, you're never going to reform that old sin nature which still has a hold on you through the body of sin. You're not ever going to improve that until you get your glorified body. And God wants us to be honest. In Roman passages like Romans 6, 12 and Galatians 5, uh, 19 through 21, he bears down on that. Remember that passage in Galatians? The works of the flesh, the works of the body, the body fleshly old nature sins are manifest. Here they are, he says. Here's the list. Adultery. Fornication. Uncleanness. Lasciviousness. Idolatry. Witchcraft. Hatred. Jealousy. Strife. Quarreling. Hatred. Rage. Orgies. It's all there. You say, well, that's for the unbeliever. That's not for me. That's for you. Those are the misdeeds of the body that you're responsible to put to death. And you will never put them to death until you own up to them. Until when that ugly temptation comes to you that you try to hide from everyone else and yourself until you're honest enough to say to God and to yourself, Lord, I realize as maybe you're passing by a magazine rack where all of the pornography is displayed and you want to step over and, and let your old nature feast on that. Right at that moment, you have to be honest enough to say, Oh God, that old part of me, that old body sin wants to step over and look at those magazines. And I realize I'm depraved and wicked enough in my old nature. That's what I would do. That's honesty. And you will never overcome sin until you face it. The second step is by death. Galatians 5.24, Romans 6.11, and right here in our text. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you shall live. What does he mean by that? How do you do that? Only by the death of Jesus Christ. That's the only way to do it. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I'm crucified with Christ. And they that are Christ have crucified their old nature with its affections and its lusts. Now what do you do in a practical situation? Let's stay with our story. You've come in and you've seen the pornography and your old nature has felt the appeal to look at it. And you've been honest enough to recognize that that old nature party you would like to step over and, and read it right there at that moment. 
You say, I am dead to its rule. You're not dead to its temptation. You won't be dead to the temptation until you leave your body and you're with the Lord. But you are dead to its rule because of the cross of Christ. And you can say with absolute certainty and honesty before God and before your own life, that thing, that temptation can't rule over me in this moment. It doesn't own me. I'm not in debt to it anymore. I'm dead to its rule. And then the third step is by the Spirit. Our text says it so clearly. If the Spirit, by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. And this is really the most important of the three steps. And that is that right at the moment, after you have been honest and after you've affirmed your death with Christ, you've declared it to be true, you reach out by faith to the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, who's brought spiritual life to you, who's renewed you in righteousness and true holiness, and you say, Blessed Holy Spirit, I ask you to come to supplant, to replace that temptation now with the fruit of your control, which is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and meekness and faithfulness and self-control. And if you're faithful, you will find you have put to death by the Spirit the misdeeds of the body. And you'll walk away from that temptation not having yielded. There is no other way for Christians to live holy in this world of sin apart from using what God has provided you. What's the practical application? First of all, every Christian has a sin problem that will plague him as long as he lives in his human body. I hope you go away knowing that because that's what God's word teaches. The second thing you need to know is that the provisions of grace are sufficient to set you free from the rule of sin. And you're in debt to that. To apply it and to walk in it. Precious Heavenly Father, we have sought by your grace and by your spirit again today to look at how in the world can believers be holy. I pray that somehow you will take the truth of your word and let us put it into practical daily application for Jesus' sake. Amen.